Chapters 11 and 12 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 11. Dr. Longghost, a wag, one of his capers. Grave though he was at times, Dr. Longghost was a decided wag. Everyone knows what lovers of fun sailors are ashore. Afloat, they are absolutely mad after it so his pranks were duly appreciated. The poor old black cook, unlashing his hammock for the night and finding a wet log fast asleep in it, and then waking in the morning with his woolly head tarred, opening his coppers and finding an old boot boiling away as saucy as could be, and sometimes cakes of pitch candying in his oven. Baltimore's tribulations were indeed sore. Footnote. He was so called from the place of his birth being a runaway Maryland slave, and footnote. There was no peace for him day nor night. Poor fellow! He was altogether too good-natured. Say what they will about easy-tempered people, it is far better on some accounts to have the temper of a wolf. Whoever thought of taking liberties with gruff black Dan? The most curious of the doctor's jokes was hoisting the men aloft by the foot or shoulder when they fell asleep on deck during the night watches. Ascending from the forecastle on one occasion, he found every soul napping, and forthwith went about his capers. Fastening a rope's end to each sleeper, he roved the lines through a number of blocks, and conducted them all to the windlass. Then, by heaving round cheerily, in spite of cries and struggles, he soon had them dangling aloft in all directions by arms and legs. Waked by the uproar, we rushed up from below, and found the poor fellows swinging in the moonlight from the tops and lower yard-arms, like a parcel of pirates gibbeted at sea by a cruiser. Connected with this sort of diversion was another prank of his. During the night, some of those on deck would come below to light a pipe, or take a mouthful of beef and biscuit. Sometimes they fell asleep, and being missed directly that anything was to be done, their shipmates often amused themselves by running them aloft with a pulley dropped down the scuttle from the foretop. One night, when all was perfectly still, I lay awake in the forecastle. The lamp was burning low and thick, and swinging from its blackened beam, and with the uniform motion of the ship, the men in the bunks rolled slowly from side to side, the hammocks swaying in unison. Presently I heard a foot upon the ladder, and looking up, saw a wide trousers leg, Immediately, Navy Bob, a stout old triton, stealthily descended, and at once went to groping in the locker after something to eat. Supper ended, he proceeded to load his pipe. Now, for a good comfortable smoke at sea, there never was a better place than the Julius forecastle at midnight. To enjoy the luxury, one wants to fall into a kind of dreamy reverie, only known to the children of the weed. And the very atmosphere of the place laden as it was with the snores of the sleepers, was inductive of this. No wonder, then, that after a while Bob's head sunk upon his breast. Presently his hat fell off, the extinguished pipe dropping from his mouth, and the next moment he lay out on the chest as tranquil as an infant. Suddenly an order was heard on deck, followed by the trampling of feet and the hauling of rigging. The yards were being braced, and soon after the sleeper was missed for there was a whispered conference over the scuttle. 
directly a shadow glided across the forecastle and noiselessly approached the unsuspecting bob it was one of the watch with the end of a rope leading out of sight up the scuttle pausing an instant the sailor pressed softly the chest of his victim sounding his slumbers and then hitching the cord to his ankle returned to the deck hardly was his back turned when a long limb was thrust from a hammock opposite and dr longghost leaping forth warily whipped the rope from bob's ankle and fastened it like lightning to a great lumbering chest the property of the man who had just disappeared scarcely was the thing done when lo with a thundering bound the clumsy box was torn from its fastenings and banging from side to side flew towards the scuttle here it jammed and thinking that bob who was as strong as a windlass was grappling a beam and trying to cut the line the jokers on deck strained away furiously on a sudden the chest went aloft and striking against the mast flew open raining down on the heads of the party a merciless shower of things too numerous to mention of course the uproar roused all hands and when we hurried on deck there was the owner of the box looking aghast at its scattered contents and with one wandering hand taking the altitude of a bump on his head chapter twelve death and burial of two of the crew the mirthfulness which at times reigned among us was in strange and shocking contrast with the situation of some of the invalids thus at least did it seem to me though not to others but an event occurred about this period which in removing by far the most pitiable cases of suffering tended to make less grating to my feelings the subsequent conduct of the crew we had been at sea about twenty days when two of the sick who had rapidly grown worse died one night within an hour of each other one occupied a bunk right next to mine and for several days had not risen from it during this period he was often delirious starting up and glaring around him and sometimes wildly tossing his arms on the night of his decease i retired shortly after the middle watch began and waking from a vague dream of horrors felt something clammy resting on me it was the sick man's hand two or three times during the evening previous he had thrust it into my bunk and i had quietly removed it but now i started and flung it from me the arm fell stark and stiff and i knew that he was dead waking the men the corpse was immediately rolled up in the strips of blanketing upon which it lay and carried on deck the mate was then called and preparations made for an instantaneous burial laying the body out on the forehatch it was stitched up in one of the hammocks some kentledge being placed at the feet instead of shot this done it was borne to the gangway and placed on a plank laid across the bulwarks two men supported the inside end by way of solemnity the ship's headway was then stopped by hauling aback the main topsail the mate who was far from being sober then staggered up and holding on to a shroud gave the word as the plank tipped the body slid off slowly and fell with a splash into the sea a bubble or two and nothing more was seen brace forward the main yard swung round to its place and the ship glided on while the corpse perhaps was still sinking we had tossed a shipmate to the sharks but no one would have thought it to have gone among the crew immediately after the dead man had been a churlish unsocial fellow while alive and no favorite and now that he was no more 
little thought was bestowed upon him. All that was said was concerning the disposal of his chest, which, having been always kept locked, was supposed to contain money. Someone volunteered to break it open and distribute its contents, clothing and all, before the captain should demand it. While myself and others were endeavoring to dissuade them from this, all started at a cry from the forecastle. There could be no one there but two of the sick, unable to crawl on deck. We went below and found one of them dying on a chest. He had fallen out of his hammock in a fit and was insensible. The eyes were open and fixed, and his breath coming and going convulsively. The men shrunk from him, but the doctor, taking his hand, held it a few moments in his, and suddenly letting it fall, exclaimed, He's gone. The body was instantly borne up the ladder. Another hammock was soon prepared, and the dead sailor stitched up as before. Some additional ceremony, however, was now insisted on, and a Bible was called for. But none was to be had, not even a prayer book. When this was made known, Anton, a Portuguese from the Cape de Verde Islands, stepped up, muttered something over the corpse of his countryman, and, with his finger, described upon the back of the hammock the figure of a large cross, whereupon it received the dead launch. These two men both perished from the proverbial indiscretions of seamen, heightened by circumstances apparent. But had either of them been ashore under proper treatment, he would, in all human probability, have recovered. Behold here the fate of a sailor. They give him the last toss, and no one asks whose child he was. For the rest of that night there was no more sleep. Many stayed on deck until broad morning, relating to each other those marvelous tales of the sea which the occasion was calculated to call forth. Little as I believed in such things, I could not listen to some of these stories unaffected. Above all was I struck by one of the carpenters. On a voyage to India they had a fever aboard, which carried off nearly half the crew in the space of a few days. After this the men never went aloft in the night-time, except in couples. When topsails were to be reefed, phantoms were seen at the yard-arm ends, and in tacking ship, voices called aloud from the tops. The carpenter himself, going with another man to furl the main top-gallant sail in a squall, was merely pushed from the rigging by an unseen hand, and his shipmate swore that a wet hammock was flirted in his face. Stories like these were related as gospel truths by those who declared themselves eye-witnesses. It is a circumstance not generally known, perhaps, that, among ignorant seamen, Finlanders, or Finns as they are more commonly called, are regarded with peculiar superstition. For some reason or other, which I never could get at, they were supposed to possess the gift of second sight, and the power to wreak supernatural vengeance upon those who offend them. On this account they have great influence among sailors, and two or three with whom I have sailed at different times were persons well calculated to produce this sort of impression, at least upon minds disposed to believe in such things. Now we had one of these sea prophets aboard, an old yellow-haired fellow, who always wore a rude sealskin cap of his own make, and carried his tobacco in a large pouch made of the same stuff. Van, as we called him, was a quiet, inoffensive man to look at, and, among such a set, his occasional peculiarities had hitherto passed for nothing. At this time, however, he came out with a prediction, 
which was none the less remarkable from its absolute fulfillment, though not exactly in the spirit in which it was given out. The night of the burial he laid his hand on the old horseshoe nailed as a charm to the foremast, and solemnly told us that, in less than three weeks, not one quarter of our number would remain aboard the ship. By that time they would have left her for ever. Some laughed. Flash Jack called him an old fool, but among the men generally it produced a marked effect. For several days a degree of quiet reigned among us, and allusions of such a kind were made to recent events as could be attributed to no other cause than the Finn's omen. For my own part, what had lately come to pass was not without its influence. It forcibly brought to mind our really critical condition. Dr. Longghost, too, frequently revealed his apprehensions, and once assured me that he would give much to be safely landed upon any island around us. Where we were exactly, no one but the mate seemed to know, nor whither we were going. The captain, a mere cipher, was an invalid in his cabin, to say nothing more of so many of his men languishing in the forecastle. Our keeping the sea under these circumstances, a matter strange enough at first, now seemed wholly unwarranted, and added to all was the thought that our fate was absolutely in the hand of the reckless German. Were anything to happen to him, we would be left without a navigator, for, according to German himself, he had, from the commencement of the voyage, always kept the ship's reckoning, the captain's nautical knowledge being insufficient. But considerations like these, strange as it may seem, seldom or never occurred to the crew. They were alive only to superstitious fears, and when, in apparent contradiction to the Finn's prophecy, the sick men rallied a little, they began to recover their former spirits, and the recollection of what had occurred insensibly faded from their minds. In a week's time, the unworthiness of little Jewel, as a sea-vessel, always a subject of jest, now became more so than ever. In the forecastle, Flash Jack, with his knife, often dug into the dank, rotten planks ribbed between us and death, and flung away the splinters with some sea-joke. As to the remaining invalids, they were hardly ill enough to occasion any serious apprehension, at least for the present, in the breasts of such thoughtless beings as themselves. And even those who suffered the most studiously refrained from any expression of pain. The truth is that among sailors as a class, sickness at sea is so heartily detested, and the sick so little cared for, that the greatest invalid generally strives to mask his sufferings. He has given no sympathy to others, and he expects none in return. Their conduct in this respect, so opposed to their generous-hearted behavior ashore, painfully affects the landsman on his first intercourse with them as a sailor. Sometimes, but seldom, our invalids invade against their being kept at sea, where they could be of no service, when they ought to be ashore and in the way of recovery. But, oh, cheer up, cheer up, my hearties, the mate would say, and after this fashion he put a stop to their murmurings. But there was one circumstance, to which heretofore I have but barely alluded, that tended more than anything else to reconcile many to their situation. This was the receiving regularly, twice every day, to a certain portion of Pisco, which was served out at the capstan by the steward in little tin measures called tots. The lively affection seamen have for strong drink is well known, but in the South Seas 
where it is so seldom to be had, a thoroughbred sailor deems scarcely any price too dear which will purchase his darling tot. Nowadays, American whalemen in the Pacific never think of carrying spirits as a ration, and aboard of most of them it is never served out even in times of the greatest hardships. All Sydney whalemen, however, still cling to the old custom, and carry it as a part of the regular supplies for the voyage. In port, the allowance of Pisco was suspended, with a view undoubtedly of heightening the attractions of being out of sight of land. Now, owing to the absence of proper discipline, our sick, in addition to what they took medicinally, often came in for their respective tots convivially, and, added to all this, the evening of the last day of the week was always celebrated by what is styled on board of English vessels the Saturday night bottles. Two of these were sent down into the forecastle just after dark, one for the starboard watch and the other for the larboard. By prescription, the oldest seaman in each claims the treat as his, and accordingly pours out the good cheer and passes it round like a lord doing the honors of his table but the Saturday night bottles were not all. The carpenter and cooper in sea parlance, chips and bungs, who were the cods or leaders of the forecastle, in some way or other, managed to obtain an extra supply, which perpetually kept them in fine after-dinner spirits, and, moreover, disposed them to look favorably upon a state of affairs like the present. But where were the sperm whales all this time? In good sooth, it made little matter where they were, since we were in no condition to capture them. About this time, indeed, the men came down from the mastheads, where, until now, they had kept up the form of relieving each other every two hours. They swore they would go there no more. Upon this, the mate carelessly observed that they would soon be where lookouts were entirely unnecessary. The whales he had in his eye, though Flash Jack said they were all in his, being so tame, that they made a practice of coming round ships and scratching their backs against them. Thus went the world of waters with us some four weeks or more after leaving Hanamanu. End of chapters 11 and 12 Recording by Tricia G.